invite you to rise for the reading of God's word, if you're able, which comes this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. Join me in prayer, please. Father, we're so humbled and amazed that you consider us co-laborers with you. We acknowledge that you and you alone give the growth, but help each of us to answer your call to plant and to water so we can see a great harvest of souls come to salvation through believing on your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Michelle. Great job doing the reading. Great job, worship team. We so appreciate them, don't we? Man, wasn't, wasn't that just a sweet spirit of worship this morning? You guys just did a phenomenal job. Great to hear your voices as well. If you want to follow along with my message today, you can open up your bulletin. The outline is right there. You can just track with me. Got a lot of stuff in there. Uh, so I want to welcome you to church. We're going to continue our series called His Workmanship, uh, unpacking various passages uh, that tell us who we are as the body of Christ. So we have talked about from Ephesians 2.10 how we are God's useful works of art. And we have also talked about how we are the sheep of his pasture from Psalm 23 and that we are the reconciled of God from 2 Corinthians 5. And last week, Pastor Ryan uh, preached a message about how we are his assembly. We are the gathering of God on the planet Earth. Today, we're going to talk about uh, being God's co-laborers, being God's co-laborers. And we're going to look at this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, everyone has probably had an experience of having good co-workers, industrious, really hardworking co-workers, and the opposite, lazy, unmotivated, unproductive co-workers. Now, when I think of the latter there, I think of uh, living in Minneapolis. My wife and I had just moved there. We were in our 20s. We were helping plant a church in the Minneapolis area. And I just needed any job. Like, I just needed any job to start out. So I took a job at a health club. Now, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the health clubs there are massive. They're like cities. <laughs> I mean, you go there, and they have multiple full-size basketball courts, all kinds. They have indoor tennis courts, and everything's indoor there, indoors there, right? Because you just freeze to death in the winter if you try to do anything outside. And so uh, this massive health club that I started working at, and this guy, they hired a guy at the same time that they hired me. And so he and I started together. And I kind of thought, man, he, he seems like he's not really present here with the training. You know, like he's just not listening. He's not tracking. Well, it turns out he wasn't tracking, and what would happen is you would go in, we worked the night shift, so you would go in at about midnight, right, or about uh, 11 o'clock, and you would punch in, and then they would lock the doors. 
So you actually could not get out until about 6 or 6.30 in the morning when they open, uh, when they unlock the doors for people to come in in the morning. And I just remember he and I were charged with cleaning that entire facility. He and I were supposed to clean that entire facility. And for the first month, I am sure I did it all by myself. I never ran into this guy. And at one point I thought, man, I know what I'm doing now. And I just set certain goals. I'm like, by 1 a.m., I'm going to have the floors done. By 2 a.m., I'm going to have the dusting done. By 3 a.m., it's going to be disinfected. So I had all these goals because I'm a goal guy. And then I got it all done, and I thought, I'm going to go find that guy. Like, I don't know where he is, but I've never seen him since we, we punched in. So I walked around that whole facility. Now, in this size facility, there were all kinds of little spaces you could hide out or you could take a break. And uh, our uh, supervisor was in the basement. He never checked on us. Never. He was like, yeah, whatever. Just go do what you want. He was just all in, right? So um, I walked around looking for this guy, and I found him. I found his hiding spot. It was in a little corner where there were some lockers, and there was a bench there. And he was laying down on the bench, and I could, and it was dark. There were no lights over there, and I could see his silhouette, and, uh, and I could hear him snoring. I could hear him, like, breathing really heavy, and I'm like, he's been sleeping. No wonder in the morning he looks so refreshed. So I walk over to him, I sneak over to him, and I go, and I start clapping really loud and hollering, hey, 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 wake up. And I mean, I watched a man levitate (laughs) off that bench. It was as if it was resurrection morning, and the trumpet call of God was calling him out of the grave. He came up. He was just, I almost gave him a heart attack. He's like, what'd you do that for, man? (laughs) And the next day, he didn't show up. He quit. And I thought, man, this is depressing. It is depressing working with a person who's, not, who's charged with the same work that I've been charged with, but he's not pulling his weight. And by contrast, uh, years later, I worked as a worship pastor at a church plant in North Spokane, Washington. And uh, the guy that I planted that church with, he was a guy his named Mike. In fact, I think he just retired And uh, Mike and I had a very similar work ethic. Mike is the hardest working guy I have ever met. He was first in, last out. I mean, he was just the most driven, hardest working guy. And about a year, year and a half into working with him, uh, Tuesday morning, I was in his office and we were debriefing the Sunday morning service. And he just stopped. Before we debriefed the Sunday morning service, he said, man, I, I want to say thank you. I said, for what? He said, for just working so hard. And I said, Mike, compared to you, I feel like a sloth. I feel like a lazy guy. Are you kidding me? You're the hardest working guy. And so we had this competition. And I cannot tell you, my, my psyche is just wired to be blessed to work alongside of people who, who are putting in the effort. That's just how I'm wired. And I'm super depressed if I work alongside of people who aren't. In fact, I get a little agitated and frustrated and a little angry. And so we all know what it's like to work with people who are pulling their weight and people who are not. And what I think is so interesting about this passage today is that Paul is talking about work. Paul's talking about our work. What Paul is telling us is that we are God's co-laborers. We are his co-workers in this effort to preach the gospel and to make disciples of people. Now, the word, the Greek word here for Coworker is the word synergos. It's the word synergos. And it's, it's the word that we get the word synergy or synergistic from. 
And it means one who works together, a helper or a fellow laborer. It's someone who comes alongside of you and says, yes, I'm going to swing my hammer and we're going to build this house and we're going to be co-laborers, co-workers together. Now, most of the time the New Testament uses this term, Paul is using the term of his fellow workers in the body of Christ, like Timothy. He calls him my co-worker in the faith, or Epaphroditus, which is a great name to name your kids, by the way. Um, just, you know, or he refers to uh, uh, Aquila and Priscilla as co-laborers in God. But in this case, he's talking about us being God's co-workers. So the big idea here, to, here today is this. In the work of the gospel of God... God will not do what he has commissioned and charged you to do. God will not do what he has charged us to do. God is not going to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. God is not going to make disciples of all nations by baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that Jesus taught. He's not going to do that. But there's an aspect of God's work in the world that you and I cannot do. And so there's some high-level stuff, some deep stuff that only the Holy Spirit can do, and you and I are co-laborers insofar as we've been called and commissioned to make disciples of the nations. So the first thing we learn from this Corinthian passage, number one, is that God's goal for us is to become spiritually mature through intentional effort. God's goal for us is to become spiritually mature through intentional effort. I'll read the passage again here in verses 1 through 4. We're going to actually kind of walk through the chapter up to about verse 9 there. He says, For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak of you or to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, and since you were not ready for it. In fact, you're still not ready, because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, or another says, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere human beings? Now, the Corinthians were suffering under the delusion that they were spiritually mature. <laughs> they thought that they were really hot stuff. And they thought this because, as it turns out, yes, indeed, God had poured out on that church Lots of spectacular gifts. And what they had done in the Corinthian church is prioritize the spiritual gifts that were the most spectacular, like the most miraculous, the things that were really a drawing card for their Corinthian neighbors who longed for supernaturalism, right? They, they really, really prioritized these gifts. And in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, he says this. He says, I'm so glad God has given you all of these gifts and knowledge and speech and all this, and you'll have them until Jesus returns for you. But understand this, you're still spiritually immature, Having pizzazzy spiritual gifts, is that a word? Pizzazzy? It's, it's a Jeffism. Having really super spectacular spiritual gifts does not make you spiritually mature. Those are tools. Those are tools. And so he says, I couldn't even address you as people who are spiritually ma uh, mature. You're still babies in Christ. When my kids were little, as yours were, you remember this, when they're little, you have to feed them. And at first, they, they literally can't even hold up their head. They're like bobbleheads, and you have to hold them and feed them a bottle. But soon, they can sit in a high chair. And you sit them in a high chair right by the table, by the dinner table, and you start to give them, you start to feed them this little, I call it just baby gruel. 
You know, that baby food, you start to feed them stuff that we wouldn't eat unless it was the apocalypse. Like, we would eat it <laughs> if the apocalypse happened. And then we feed it to our kids. But that's what they, they, don't, they can't chew yet. But then eventually, before long, after a couple of months or so, you can feed them little Cheerios and put little Cheerios down on the table. And then you can give them, like, SpaghettiOs. And that's what we did. We started our kids out with, like, SpaghettiOs. Uh, and I just was remembering as I was writing this down, my, my firstborn son, Tyler, sitting there just giving him just a little bit of SpaghettiOs. And the next thing you know, it's uh, SpaghettiOs up his nose and stuck down in his ears, just smeared all over his head. He always needed a bath after meals, right? And so the goal of the little kid is for them to begin to eat more solid food and begin to feed themselves. Your goal as, as a person who is growing in Christ is begin to uh, to begin to grow in your knowledge and depth of insight into the word and to be able to increasingly feed yourself and not be so dependent on either your pastor or your Sunday school teacher or what have you. And so now the author of Hebrews says this. This is a curious passage. He says in Hebrews 6, 1 through 3, he says, therefore let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity. So one of the things we want to do in this church is we want to help every believer who gathers here on a Sunday morning, we want to help you grow in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of our goals. We want every person to leave the elementary truths of Christ. It doesn't mean forget them. It means master them. And then to move on to greater levels of spiritual maturity. How do we do this? Philippians 1.9 tells us this. He says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. As we grow and we get to know the Lord Jesus, as we get to know his word, as we grow in our knowledge of him and our depth of insight, we should have a commensurate growth in our love, in our capacity to love others, to show them the same grace and the same mercy that Jesus shows us. So what makes a person ready to move on from the elementary things? Why didn't the Corinthians, why were the Corinthians not able to move on to the spiritually mature things? Well, he tells the Corinthians in this context that we must rid ourselves of worldliness. We must rid ourselves of worldly thinking. Because worldly thinking produces envy and jealousy and factions and strife. And it also produces what we call in our time tribalism. And you've heard this word, tribalism, very simply, is, is, a, is a constant aligning of ourselves with and ident identifying ourselves after any tribe that is not of Christ. Now, this does not mean that you can't belong to clubs. This does not mean that you can't go to Costco and have a Costco membership. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about aligning yourself with a movement or identifying yourself as someone who actually uh, is part of a group or part of a tribe that denies the truth of God's word or denies the gospel. And so tribalism is this idea that we break off into these tribes and then we, we're constantly at war with our neighboring tribes. And this is why the instruction from God's word is so critical, it's so vital. Listen, a man may not embrace Christ as his master or discipler. But just because a man does not embrace Christ as his master does not mean that that man does not have a master. You and I can serve either God or money. 
and you can serve God with money. But if you choose not to serve God, you're going to serve money or something like it. We all have a master. We are all being discipled. In God's word, what Paul is trying to say is you need to be discipled in the word. What you need to do is become more and more conformed to the pattern of Christ so you can grow up in the faith, not just be spiritually gifted. And the various worldviews of our culture are guilty of thievery because they will steal, kill, and destroy our heritage of faith. I'll just pick on a few, my favorites. The the philosophical naturalist worldview. A philosophical naturalist worldview is the atheist worldview. It is the view that says philosophically there is nothing but the natural world. The Bible tells us that's not true. And I think our human experience also tells us that's not true. And that worldview, if you subsume it, if you feed on it, if you uh, rely upon it, that worldview will rob you of a genuine experience of God in Christ in redemption. To tell me that I am nothing more than matter in motion. To convince me to deny what is self-evidently true about my life, that I am a human being, not just some mass of molecules moving around. That I'm a soul who lives in a body, who has my own thoughts and my own passions and my own desires. To tell me that I am nothing more than matter in motion, a thing The firing of chemicals in a fleshly body robs me of the experience of redemption in Christ. Because the truth of the matter is that I am a spiritual being who is dead in my transgressions and who desperately needs the forgiveness and the love and the mercy and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. But this is a worldview that permeates our culture and permeates our society that would rob us of that rich heritage. Another one is victimhood culture. The victimhood worldview, which is a direct descendant of the naturalist or atheist worldview, would have me identify with some disenfranchised tribe as a perpetual and virtuous victim. But God says this, no matter what happened to you, no matter what was done to you, here's the truth, you're a sinner. The fact of the matter is that you stand before a holy God. You and I both stand before a holy God, and we have offended his holiness with our sin. Now, that's not to minimize what was done to you. That's not to minimize the justice that might be due you. Let's pray for that. But the truth of the matter is that you and I both stand before a holy God as unrighteous sinners, having slapped his honor in the face. And you are not a perpetual victim. And being a victim is not virtuous. Being saved is virtuous. And then there's the radical individualist worldview which tells me that my chief, this permeates our society as well, which tells me that my chief aim, my chief goal in life is to fully self-actualize, to get all I want in life, to have everything that I desire, to fully realize my capacity, my potential. And what the scripture teaches me is, no, actually your highest priority in life as a human being made in God's image is to love God supremely above all. And then to love your fellow man made in God's image as you love yourself. That's your highest aim. That's what the scripture teaches. You see, the world will disciple you to believe things that are false about you. And this is why the word is so important. This is why it is so vital. Because it pushes back against a discipling culture that's trying to turn us into something that doesn't look like Christ. 
And this is how Charles Haddon Spurgeon put it, the greatest preacher of the 19th century. I'm sure this is true. (laughs) He said, a man gets just enough religion to make him miserable. He cannot be satisfied now with the world, and he's not satisfied with God, so he is miserable all around. Oh, that you had not only enough religion to make you a miserable sinner, but enough to make you a rejoicing saint. But if we neglect to search the word and, to, and neglect private prayer and neglect the assemblies of God's house, if we restrict and deny ourselves communion with the Most High, can we wonder if we do not grow? God will build our spiritual house, undoubtedly. But we also must labor in it. There must be an earnestness, a prayerfulness, a watchfulness, an intensity of desire, a using of all appointed means by which we may be built up in our most holy faith. He goes on to say, what, listen, whatever God has worked in, you got to work out. You have to work out. You and I are co-laborers with God. The work done to you is done, but the work in you and through you is being done. And Paul says to the Corinthians, it's time to grow up. It's time to leave behind the elementary things of the faith and to grow up in the most holy faith through effort, through holy effort. Number two, God has ordained leaders to carry out this work in the church and in the world. God has ordained leaders to lead the charge in this, both by teaching and by example. Now, the Corinthians have mistaken the purpose of Christian leadership. They don't know what the purpose of Christian leadership is. Even after Paul has spent so much time with them, Paul has gone off now. He has to write this letter. He and Sosthenes have to write this letter back to them to correct them. Now, they live in a crazy culture. They live in a culture uh, that is is suffused with uh, these professional speakers, these professional orators. They're called rhetors. And ancient historians record that the redors would line the streets and holler across the street epithets and holler insults at each other to see who could one-up the other. And whoever would win, the honor, the fame, the celebrity of that famous professional speaker was then transferred to his disciples who sat around him uh, sort of cheering him on. And so this was an honor-shame culture. If you were publicly shamed, that was the worst thing that could happen to you. But if you were publicly honored, that was the best thing that could happen to you. But if you were born into low-class associations, you couldn't, be, you couldn't receive any honor through your trade or through your craft or anything else. Or through, you didn't have any wealth. And so you aligned yourself with a person, a professional, a speaker, who could really, really bring the heat, really bring the smackdown on a fellow red whore. Right? And so their, their culture was completely factionalized. It was totally fact, bro- broken off into factions in these public orators and these public speakers. Now, this is what they've done to Paul and Peter and Apollos. And he has to correct this. He says in verses 5 through 9, he says, what, what, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed. And each has the role the Lord has given Listen, I planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one who gave the growth so that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. That is, is anything of much reputation, but only God who gives the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. 
And so he has to correct their misgivings about what Christian leaders, God has given Christian leaders for. And there's some things here we need to know about leaders. He tells us leaders are servants, not superstars. Leaders are servants, not superstars. Now, he uses the word servant. It is the word doulos. And that word in the first century means slave. Now, in this culture, if you were a slave, you were the most dishonored person. You could not receive honor. It was the most dishonorable uh, job that you could have. And there were many slaves in this culture. And this is the word that Paul uses for the leaders of the church. We have been your slaves. We've slaved away to serve you so that the gospel will come to you. And so leaders are servants, not superstars. Stop trying to turn your leaders, Apollos and Peter and Paul, into celebrities. They're not. He says they're servants through whom you believed. And then he tells us that leaders have a variety of roles to play. Not every leader is made the same. Verse 5b, and each has the role. Each has a role. So each leader has his own role to play. Not every leader has the same strengths or gifts or calling. Paul did the laborious work of tilling and planting. So he uses this farming metaphor. He says, I, I, worked my, I broke my back to till and plant the seed of the gospel among you. And then here comes Apollos. No. He says, and then Apollos comes along, and what does he do? He does the backbreaking, laborious work of setting up an irrigation system and digging trenches to the field to irrigate that seed. And then Peter comes along, and he doesn't say this, but it's implied. He, he's the manure guy. <laughs> he and Peter were like, you know. But somebody has to manure that. And then someone has to come along and reap it. So Sosthenes and other leaders are there reaping the harvest that we planted. And so he gives them this analogy that each leader has a different role to play. Each one has different gifts and different abilities. But no winning passes can be made or no winning shots can be made in a basketball game without the whole team. And no winning touchdowns can be thrown without the whole team. Now, the guy throwing the pass and the guy catching the pass in the end zone or the guy running it in, they, usually, they are usually the ones that get the MVP, right? It's never the guy on the line, like that 300-pound human freight train who stood there and wouldn't let the other guys through to tackle the quarterback. He should get an MVP once in a while, right? But it takes the whole team to win. And this is what he's saying here. He says, God has given all of us different roles, different strengths, different giftings. And we also note that leaders are appointed. Well, they're not just, they don't just show up. They're appointed by God. He says in verse 5c, he says, each one has the role the Lord has given them. It's the Lord who appoints the leader. It's the Lord who raises them up. It's the Lord who gifts them and then brings their hearts to a place where they can respond and serve now, Jesus called God the Lord of the harvest, and this is what he said. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers. Why? Because the harvest is ripe for picking, but the workers are few. And so it takes the Lord of the harvest to bring laborers and send them forth. Pray for that. Pray that the Lord will send leaders. Pray that the Lord will send people who can lead the charge. All of us have heard stories of America's great resignation, haven't we? 
The Bureau of Labor Statistics reports record labor shortages. More work to do than ever, fewer people to do the work. And for the last year, people have been quitting their jobs and opting for early retirement or just retirement, actually. In a recent article, Forbes magazine reported on the anti-work movement. Have you heard of this movement? To date, the anti-work movement has several million people in it. And these are people, their motto, quote, is to have the American dream without the work. (laughs) And I want to say, you can't have it. You can't. Listen, God made human beings. Go back to the story of Genesis. This is why this story is so important. God worked for six days, didn't he? To create the world. And then what did he do? He rested on one. And then he creates this image bearer out of the mud, breathes into him the the breath of life. He, He stands up and then he has a job to do. He has work to do. And then God gives him later a command to Sabbath. Not to Sabbath for six days and work one. Listen, you're not designed to do that. You're not designed for that much rest. You and I, God designed us to be productive. He, he designed us to work and then rest. And so God has called us to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth not anti-work folks, but laborers, co-workers who will bring the harvest in. And then we find that leaders are one. So whatever the diverse giftings and abilities and all this that the Lord has bestowed upon the leaders, they actually just have one purpose. He says, he who plants and he who waters, they're one. We, work at, we don't work at cross purposes. We work at one purpose, and that purpose is the mission that God has given us. And so we strive and work toward the same goal. And so what unites us? What is that thing that unites us as leaders, as the people of God? Well, it's the gospel of God. It's God's gospel, and it's so important that Paul needs to bring this up to the churches, not to abandon it, not to allow the culture to change it materially. He says in 2 Corinthians 11.4, he says, For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you had not received, or a different gospel which you had not accepted, you put up with that splendidly. He says, don't do that. Listen, it is just human nature to believe in a false Jesus. When I first got saved, actually, I started believing in a false Jesus. I started believing in the Jesus who who wanted to give me a miracle a day to make all my problems go away. And that Jesus, listen, that magical Jesus doesn't exist. And then he tells the Galatians, Galatians 1, 6, he says, I'm I'm astonished. I mean, I'm, I'm flummoxed, actually that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You see, any gospel that is not a grace gospel is a false gospel. And he's saying, I'm, I'm just, I'm shocked that you would be turning to this false Jesus and this false gospel. And then leaders are unified by the same message and the same message, message he tells the Philippians in Philippians 1, 27 through 28. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of, of the gospel of Christ. And then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, Holy Spirit, striving together as one for the faith and for the gospel. So whatever diversity the Lord has put within the body of Christ, we strive as one, with one mission. And so this is God's God's vision for us, to grow us up. Number three, Christian leaders are united by the same goal. 
to reap the harvest and build up the church. So this is the goal now. He says it's to reap the harvest for the gospel, to work uh, assiduously, to work with vigor and passion and energy toward reaping the harvest together. He says, for we are God's co-workers and you are God's field, you are God's building. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the building. We're going to finish this chapter and talk about how God has made us a temple. But we want to talk just, we want to finish it out today by looking at this metaphor of being God's field. And he's not just randomly, haphazardly coming up with different metaphors here. These two work together in the Bible throughout Scripture. So this idea of working the field or the ground comes right out of Genesis chapter 2. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 12, it tells us that the earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. That's a summary statement of day three. But then we rewind the tape, and in Genesis chapter 2, here's what it says in verse 4. It describes the third day as not bearing seeds or shrubs or plants, not doing anything that Genesis 1, 12 says, but having the potential for it. He says, these are the the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. All uh, at the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had uh, had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. See what is missing. So notice in the creation story, right right there in Genesis chapter 2, right there in Genesis chapter 2, it tells us what a human being's purpose is. One of the purposes of being a human being is to work, is to work at God's purposes in the world. So labor, work, is not a curse. Some people think that. Some people think that work is a curse. No, the curse is that work is going to be really hard now. The, the world that you're tilling, the world that you're trying to cultivate is going to fight you. And now, instead of working in the power of the Holy Spirit, you work in the toil of your own flesh, your own strength, and you come home exhausted every day. But work is a blessing. Work is a blessing. And I feel like with every invention that we have made, every tool that we have ever made, we have been trying to get back to Genesis chapter 2. Everything, a wheel, Right? They created a wheel. Why? Because it was just easier to like create a wheelbarrow and roll things around instead of carrying sheaves of whatever. Uh, when we created a tractor, a tractor made things infinitely more easy to, to farm. And then we, cre- we created trucks to haul stuff. Like every tool, everything we've ever made has been an attempt to get back to Genesis chapter 2. To do the work that God has called us to do. God has called us to labor. He's called us to be co-workers, but to do it easier. I'm doing something that's really hard right now, but I've made it a little easier. I, uh, I'm finishing up my PhD program, and I've turned in my dissertation. So between the time I've turned it in and the time I go for my defense in March, between the board, uh, before the board, I have to study every chapter of my dissertation, and I have to know it like I, like I know John 3.16, man. Like, I got to know it. So I got tired of reading it because my dissertation unlike my sermons, is super boring. Sorry, for those of you who are asleep, you think both are, but that stuff is really uh, difficult to wade through. It's very difficult to read through. It's very technical, and the deeper you get into it, the more technical it becomes, because I'm making a very technical argument about a very arcane subject that I think five people, five scholars in the world even care about. Uh, But it's interesting to me, 
right? So, so now I've got to go through every chapter. And the other day, I finished reading the chapter. I think it was last Sunday, actually. And I thought, I, I, can't, I literally cannot eat this chalk dust anymore. So I found an app that will read it to me. And I was like, praise the Lord. <laughs> now, this is funny. I found this app that will read it to me. And so I upload a PDF to it, and as I drive around in the car, I'm doing errands. It just reads these chapters back to me, and I'm like, oh, that's an interesting insight, <laughs> you know, like, and, and it's just reading it to me. And the other day, I'm driving around with Carrie. We're running a few little errands, and I'm listening to it in the Jeep, and she's like, oh, please, do we have to listen to this? And I go, yes, actually, I have to listen to this. And she goes, oh, it's just, can you turn it down? Do you have headphones? <laughs> So I got back to the house. I drop her off, and I have to go out and run a few more errands that she sends me out on. When I pull up in front of the door, she goes, oh, let me out of this car. i got to get out. She, she could not get out of the car fast enough, right? And so I decided to make it even easier on myself. I found an app that will read it to me in the voice of Morgan Freeman. <laughs> let me tell you, you got something hard to read? Let Morgan Freeman read it to you. It's like a dissertation presented by Morgan Freeman. You know, like it just, and now it's incredibly easy, right? Still hard work. But what am I doing? I'm trying to get back to Genesis 2. I want to do the work, but I want it to be a little easier. And so in the New Testament, we find out that we have been charged with this enormous task, Matthew 28, of making disciples of all the nations. What? How could we accomplish such a mission? And then Acts chapter 2 comes along and it says, and the Holy Spirit, they were all together in one place, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. And now it's labor, it's co-work, but it's a little easier because the Holy Spirit is the one who works and wills in us. The Holy Spirit is the one who is using us and working through us and making his appeal for men to be reconciled to the Lord. And so we can trust in the Lord's power to do the Lord's work. God has restored his presence to us. To us. So I have some take-home questions for you today. They're very simple. When you think of being God's coworker, what do you think of? What image comes to your mind? What effort might God be calling us to do to live conformed to his word versus conformed to the world system? How might you apply that this week? How might you apply this principle of living conformed to his word, the effort, the labor, the work of conforming your thinking to his word? And then two, how, how do we react to God accomplishing his work and purposes through our effort? Let me ask you a question. Does your theology allow for that? I mean, do you believe there are people actually who do not believe that God has called us to be his co-laborers in this work? I'm telling you, you're not going to like Paul. Because Paul tells us that God has called us to do that. And Paul left it all on the field, didn't he? When Paul died, finally, he left the world nothing but an empty body, spent for Jesus Christ. And thirdly, how specifically can you work toward the harvest this week? Who can you start a conversation with? Who can you strike a friendship up with to say, hey, I want to tell you my story about how I came to know this amazing grace, this forgiveness of Jesus Christ in the cross? Who can you write down on a list and say, I'm going to begin to pray for that person? And how often have you prayed for God to send laborers into the harvest? Will you begin to pray for that? 
The church is suffering today. The church is closing. There are more churches closing than there are being planted today. Just a few years ago, only about 4,000 churches every year were closing. That's still a high number. Today, it's more like 7,700. Will you pray and ask the Lord to, to raise up young leaders and to send them forth into the harvest to work this harvest? Begin to pray for that. The church needs it. The church in America is dying. We're losing ground. And so we need to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into this, this, this harvest field. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Father, we just thank you <clears throat> for this word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank, you for, we thank you for loving us enough to save us and forgive us of our sins, but also to invite us into this work of new creation, of calling men and women in this culture and in this world to be reconciled with the living God through Jesus Christ. And God, we, we ask that you would help us as individuals and as a church to grow up in the most holy faith. And Lord, as, as we pray earnestly and read diligently and walk with you and meditate on your word, God, would you just transform us into mature, growing disciples? Help us to do that. And then, God, you, you have ordained leaders to this task to carry out this work and to lead the charge. And, Lord, we pray for our leaders, for our elders and our pastors. But we also thank you so much for all the leaders who lead Sunday school classes on a Sunday morning. For every small group leader who leads a home group. We thank you for every technical person who shows up and punches buttons and makes worship possible for us on a Sunday morning. We thank you for every usher, every greeter, every person in this church who shows up and works the fields and labors toward people's discipleship. And God, would you just activate us if we haven't been involved to become involved, to plug into ministry. And God, we thank you that we are unified under the gospel. And Lord, I pray for Christ Community Church. I pray for this church. I pray for this home church family that you will help us to be grounded firmly on the word to be unified soundly and unapologetically on the good news of Jesus Christ and that we would never shift off of, the, uh, off of that goal, off of that calling. And as a people, Lord, bless us. And may we be a blessing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand?